Good morning. I am Linda Smith, and I'm a grateful recovering Al-Anon. Hi, everybody. I want to thank the committee for inviting me, and um, Pam, I've, it's been a pleasure being with you, and Sylvia, and Bonnie, all of you. I knew some people here, some I didn't know. Um, Charles and Ann always are important to me, seeing them at these things, and meeting Karen. I just couldn't name everybody, but it's just been great so far. Uh, it'll be a lot better when I get down from here, too. <laughs> and I'm going to really enjoy the rest of the weekend. <laughs> I always say I'm a grateful recovering Al-Anon, and I am grateful today, but uh, I remember a lot of times I wasn't grateful, even as a child. Uh, I never was satisfied. I always wanted more. Uh, things were just never right with me, even as a child. I didn't grow up in alcoholism, um, but I was in that family, and I... <laughs> There, I had a mother, father, grandmother that lived with us, and three sisters. And I was just the rebel in the family. I just, the others, we just, there was no drinking, like I said. We went to church every Sunday. We kind of a regular middle-class family. And, but I just never was okay. I wanted to be better than I was. We didn't have as much. I wanted more money. I wanted more prestige. I wanted it all. Um, when I'd play with my sisters or any other children, if they didn't play like I played, wanted them to play, I just wouldn't play with them. It had to be my way or no way. And so we were brought up, like I said, in the church, and I was taught to pray, Thy will be done. And I did pray that way, but I didn't mean it. I wanted God to do it my way. It had to be my way or no way, even with God, you know. So um, that's how I grew up, wanting something I didn't have, not really knowing what, except that I wanted to be somebody. Um, I went to school, and in high school, my best friend, uh, her father was a doctor, and she was somebody. So I hooked up with her, you know, and, and I became a cheerleader, captain of the cheerleaders, and uh, tried to be somebody, and I, but I never felt as good as those other people all that time. And so um, I still had that, but on the outside, I would act like I was okay, and nobody really knew. But anyway, like I said, we went to church, and I was... Um, taught to, to uh, believe in God, and I did believe in God. Well, I got through high school, and I went off to college. Now, I didn't smoke or drink. I was a good little girl, I thought, back then. And the people that did that in high school, I thought they were the rough crowd, you know, the bad crowd. They, I didn't do that in high school. Now, my, some of my friends did, even my best friend did. But uh, when I got to college, it, you know, it, it became sociably acceptable, and it was okay to drink. And I tried it, but it... Um, you know, I felt like I was already in control of everything. So when I drank and started feeling it, <laughs> no, you AAs, but anyway, um, <laughs> I know you don't <laughs> understand this, but <laughs> I felt like that I was losing control, and I didn't like that feeling. So uh, I didn't drink. I just quit. I just didn't drink, you know, and I said, but for the grace of God, because it could have worked the other way with me, too. And I, I already have the disease of morism, so, <laughs> you know, it could have worked that way. But it didn't work that way for me. It didn't do for me what it does for an alcoholic. And I'm grateful to God for that today, too. But anyway, I went off to college, like I said, and uh, went a couple of years and decided I, had, I was so independent. I had to get out on my own and make my own living. If I'd only known then what I know now, I'm still making my own living. <laughs> it I would have stayed in school a while. But I got out on my own and... Um, I had uh, dated some people in college, and, but, you know, hadn't met Mr. Wright. But I was out working, and I met Mr. Wright. 
I guess he was Mr. Wright. I thought so at the time. See, my idea was that I was going to meet this guy, and he was going to come riding up on this big white horse and, <laughs> you know, my knight in shining armor, and he was going to get off that horse. He was going to get down on his knees, and he was going to propose to me, and we were going to get married. We were going to have a little white house and a picket with a picket fence and two children and live happily ever after. Now, that's the way it was supposed to be. Well, I met this guy, and I knew he drank, but like, like I said, by then drinking was okay, and we started dating. Well, we dated, and we dated, and I kept waiting for him to play his role. He was supposed to do it like I thought it was supposed to be done, and he didn't. Uh, after seven years of dating him, I finally told him one day it was time we got married. He said, okay, so we got married. <laughs> now, I thought that, uh, you know, that he was going to quit drinking. See, I knew he had, I didn't know anything about alcoholism, but I knew he had a problem drinking. He had already lost his license for a year with DUIs and all of this before I married him. But I thought he loved me so much, when we got married, he'd quit drinking. I knew nothing about alcoholism. I really thought, you know, if alcoholics could do that, we wouldn't need AA and Al-Anon. <laughs> but it doesn't work that way, does it? Because <laughs> I know alcoholics love a lot. And I know he loved me, but he couldn't quit drinking. But I didn't know that at the time, and I really thought when we got married he'd quit drinking and that we were going to have all that little stuff, you know, my fantasy, and live happily ever after. Well, we got married, and um, the drinking just got... He was a full-blown alcoholic, and the drinking just really took off. <laughs> uh, and it did, and I decided it was my responsibility to make him stop. I had chosen him. He was mine now. Poor guy. And I was going to make him stop drinking. Well, the more I tried to make him stop drinking, the more he drank. And the more he drank, the more I tried to make him stop drinking. So we got on that merry-go-round, and it just started going faster and faster. Oh, I did things like I'd pour out his liquor, but then he had so many DUIs, I didn't want him to get in the car and go get some more, so I'd go back for him and bring it back. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that thing's in my face. Is that okay, Charles? I moved it. Thank you. <laughs> But anyway, um, so, you know, and I did things like, one time I uh, diluted it. I thought he wouldn't get as drunk, so I poured it out. I left it where it could, you know, the liquor, so it wouldn't look as like I'd mess with it. And I put a little line there, too, so I'd see how much he was drinking. Um, I'd go get him. He, he would get these DUIs, and he'd get in jail, and I'd go bail him out. And, you know, I was working, making the living, and I was paying him. One day, this was long before Al-Anon, I thought, you know, I'm tired of spending my money to get him out of jail. I'm just going to let him sit there. Of course, he called somebody else and they got him out. But he eventually, uh, back then, was a habitual violator. You know, had so many DUIs that he lost his license like for five years back then. Um, and about, we'd been married about a year and a half. And I decided that we needed to go see his sister. She was in a hospital in another town. And she had a two-year-old son that I kept a lot. And so... One Saturday when I was off work, I loaded them up, you know, the little two-year-old and my husband. Now, he always took an ice chest full of beer wherever we went, and he hunted and fished, and he always had guns around. So he took some of his guns with him. He was in the back seat, and I was driving and the little two-year-old in the car, and here we head out early Saturday morning. I used to say that uh, I drove because he didn't have any license, which is true, but I had to get honest in this program. I drove because I could do it better than he could anyway. See, I have a little problem with control. Uh, I didn't know that at the time. Didn't know it till I got in this program and did a fourth step. But I have a problem with control, so I'm in control of everything. I can handle it. So here we go. We take off to go to this town about three hours away to visit his sister. And he drank his beer, 
And he cleaned his guns and reloaded them, and they were in the back seat. So we get there, and we go in, and we visit the sister, and he got away from me. Now, see, I was already in playing these games of keeping up with the alcoholic, not letting him get the car keys, not letting him get away from me, because it was my job to make sure I watched him at all times to see what he was doing. I had a hard time doing that when I was off trying to work during the day, and he was out at the house. I had a hard time checking on him. But um, that was what I thought I was supposed to do. But anyway, he left for a few minutes, and I was there visiting with his sister and the little, uh, taking care of the two-year-old. He came back. Uh, now, he was doing okay, drinking his beer going up there. He wasn't drunk. I mean, you know, he was okay when we got to the hospital. When he came back, he was not very steady, and, and he was real upset about his sister. But anyway, so I said, we got to go. So we get in the car, and I had not fed the two-year-old, so we stopped at a fast food place. And I, my husband said, I'm just going to stay in the car, leave the keys. So I did. I took the two-year-old inside and was feeding the baby. And I looked out the windows, and my husband was leaving. He had not pulled out into the traffic. We were in a big town. And so I just left the two-year-old sitting there, and I ran out to the car and somehow reached in and got the car turned off, him out of the front seat in the back, went back in, got the two-year-old, and came back and headed out. Now, I had seen him drunk a lot, but I had never seen him quite like he was that day. It was as if he didn't know what he was doing or who I was or what was going on. So I'm driving in all this traffic, and I'm from a little town that doesn't have all this traffic, and I'm trying to tend to the two-year-old up here, and it, the car had bucket seats, so I'm trying to tell my husband I can take care of everything, you see. Everything's going to be okay, and it'll be all right. And he grabs my arm, and I'm trying to drive, you know, and I finally get it back, and we head out of town. We get out of town, and he sees the liquor store, and he said, stop at that liquor store. And I said, no, we've got to get this baby home. And he pulled a loaded gun on me. And he said, I said, stop. And I pulled over the side of the road. Now, I had had fear in my life, just usual fears, but nothing like that. I had not grown up in any physical abuse or any, anything like that. So I never had any kind of fear like I had then. And I thought, my God, what am I going to do? This baby's here. I've got to take care of the baby. You know, uh, all of this is going on. And I'm praying for my life, and I'm saying, oh, God, what can I do? And I'm talking for my life because you know I talk a lot. And so I was trying to tell him, hey, it's okay, you know, put the gun down. And about that time, uh, some friends had been to see a sister that knew our car, so they saw the car and thought we had broken down. So they stopped, and when they stopped, he threw the gun down. But what I want to talk about is that fear. I was not a person that pushed uh, stuff feelings or pushed things down inside. I was a person that told everything and talked all the time. But that was something that, that fear, I just pushed it down inside and thought, I can't tell anybody about this. Um, I know today that part of that was that I had just gotten in that marriage. See, I was 28 years old before we married, and all my friends had gotten married and were having children. And um, when we got married, uh, you know, I didn't want to be a failure, fail, failure, I can't talk this morning. And um, I thought that if I got out of that marriage, I'd be a failure. And I didn't want to do that, you know. And I, so I, what I told myself was I had to make this okay. You know, I had to just push it down inside and not say anything. But anyway, uh, when the uh, couple stopped, the woman took the two-year-old and her husband, who I, didn't, I hardly knew, uh, got in the car with me. And I kept thinking, how am I going to tell this man he may get shot? But I did, you know, I, and my husband was awake. But anyway, my husband finally passed out. We got home and went to bed, and I didn't sleep at all that night. That fear was there and all this was going on. I got the two-year-old to sleep and my husband to sleep. And finally the next morning, 
I told him in detail exactly what happened. I do believe today that he was in a blackout and he doesn't remember, did not remember any of that. Um, he promised me that he would never drink again, and he meant it. I know today he meant it, but he didn't know how not to. And, of course, in a few days he was drinking again. But like I said, I pushed that fear inside. I didn't know what to do with that, but I couldn't tell anybody. And uh, later on I'd, I would see this. This was long before Al-Anon. Um, this uh, preacher I could talk to, and I would go talk to him, and I finally told him about it. And um, I do know today the more I tell something, the more I share it, the less uh, effect it has on my life. You know, we're only sick as our secrets, and if I'll just go ahead and, and share with somebody what's going on, it just doesn't have the hold over me that it used to. But anyway, this had quite a hold on me for quite a few years. Um, the fear was there. But anyway, after that happened uh, and he started drinking again, you know, it just got worse. And I, what I told myself I had to do was I had to really now, I had to really do something to make him stop drinking. So I just redoubled my efforts. Everything I was doing, I just did it twofold, you know. I got to make him stop. I decided uh, he needed a psychiatrist because he was sick. I knew he was sick. I knew he had all these problems. See, I thought that if I could solve all his problems, then, then he could quit drinking. Today I know, first place, I couldn't solve his problems. But I also know that he had to get sober before he could deal with his problems, too. But I didn't know that then, so I was going to take him to a psychiatrist. Well, I was working. See, he, he worked for his dad. They had a business and they had a farm. And we had gotten embarrassed with him being at the business and the customers seeing him, so we had tucked him away at the farm to work. And so he wasn't in the public eye. And so he, he, Daddy didn't fire him, of course, so he still uh, worked for his dad. Uh, when he worked, but mostly I made the living. And um, where was I going? <laughs> See that blank you were talking about this morning, Pam? <laughs> Pam and I were talking this morning. She said you, she's so afraid if she talked she'd have a blank. I said it doesn't matter. I'll just pick up and say something else if I do. So, <laughs> so that's what I'll do. But Oh, the psychiatrist. So I decided to need the psychiatrist. And um, I was working, so I had insurance coverage. At, we lived in a little town, so I had to take him to another town to the psychiatrist. So I was taking him on an outpatient basis. So I'd take off work, take him to the psychiatrist. I went in and told the psychiatrist all these problems that he had and his drinking. And he, I would sit there. He would see the psychiatrist. Well, he would drink beer on the way up there, and he'd drink beer on the way back. And we went week after, once a week, week after week after week. Well, finally, I thought, he's not helping him. I need to talk to that psychiatrist. So when I went in to talk to the psychiatrist to what was going on, the my husband had convinced that psychiatrist that I was the one with the problem. Now, I'm telling you, I'm, I know now I did have a problem, but at that time I didn't think it was anything wrong with me. It was him, and it made me mad as fire, so I quit letting him go to that psychiatrist. <laughs> I said, you won't go anymore. Well, so did him. He didn't care anyway. But uh, I was so sick, but I had no idea I was affected at all by his drinking. So we um, kept going like that. In 1977, this preacher that I could talk to knew a little bit about alcoholism and treatment, and my husband was just getting worse. We'd only been married a couple, maybe three years, three or four, I don't know. And um, he was beginning to have a few physical problems along with the drinking, and it was just bad. So we convinced him he needed to go to treatment. So in 1977, my husband, in November, my husband went to treatment. 
Well, now, he had gone for the cure. I knew nothing about this, but I thought, this is wonderful. He was out of my hair for a month. <laughs> you know, I could relax a minute. I had somebody else, see, uh, you know, tending to it. And um, I just thought it was great because I knew he'd gone for the cure. He was going to come home. We were going to get that little white house with the picket fence, have those two children, and live happily ever after. Now, I was actually 12-step while I, he was away at treatment. These Al-Anons came to see me. They called. I used to say they found out about me through my husband, and they did probably, but uh, I thought that they knew about me because of him. Today I knew that, no, they knew about me because of, of them. <laughs> but they did actually a 12-step call because they called, they, two Al-Anons came to my house, brought literature, told me about themselves, and uh, asked me to come to a meeting. And so I did. I went to my first Al-Anon meeting in 1977. It was a speaker. She was funny. I thought it was wonderful. I picked up the literature. I thought, this is wonderful. He's gone for the cure anyway, you know. I didn't need that one meeting. And, uh, I, you know, he was coming home and everything was going to be fine. Well, I, I had a name for him. See, I thought he was just sorry. I thought he was a sorry drunk. But I thought alcoholic sounded good. I thought that sounded pretty good. So I had a name for him. That's about what I got out of that. And it wasn't their fault. It was what I heard. But anyway, um, so it got time to go get him at the treatment center. And... I went, they had a, like a two or three day stay, you know, at that time, and I went and stayed and went to the first AA, now I loved AA right away. I love drunks, I just do. And uh, the room's just full of smoke back then, you know, and I went, they took us out from the treatment center to this AA meeting, you know, and all of this smoke and all of these people, but I thought it was wonderful. All of this was great. Anyway, it got time to go home. We went home, he got drunk that night. <laughs> I thought... You know, from 1977 to 1984, even though the seed had been planted for AA and Al-Anon, I never thought about that was the solution to our problem because I was still in control. Oh, when people start Al-Anon, I think it's important to tell them, go to at least six meetings, you know. I mean, <laughs> try to get them to more than one meeting. But anyway, so I, um, we just... Started uh, that merry-go-round just started going faster and faster. After he got home, started drinking. Like I said, uh, I thought, well, we just I really got to make him stop. And one time I put him in a psych ward in a med surge hospital for five days, locked him up. And um, now he was not a violent person, but when he got out, he looked at me and he said, "If you ever put me anywhere else, I'll kill you." And that fear that I had pushed way down inside came back, and I thought, I'll never put him anywhere else as long as I live. Now, see, I couldn't leave him. I mean, I, well, first place, I didn't believe divorce was right. But, I mean, I couldn't leave him for a lot of other reasons, too, I didn't think. And so I just, at that point, thought, well, uh, I'll just have to live with him the rest of my life. I heard somebody say there were the, uh, three M's, mother, manager, and martyr. And I never had those children, so I mothered him. He acted like a child, and I treated him like one. Manager, you know I could manage anything and take care of everything. And Marta, I would say, oh, I just have to live with him. <laughs> I'm not proud of that today, but I really played the part real well. People would say, how can you live with that sorry drunk and just pat me on the back, you know. And I think I was wonderful that I could stay in it, you know. This is all before Al-Anon. <laughs> but anyway, so we're both getting sicker and sicker and sicker, and... um but I, that fear was still there, like I said. I had talked, uh, you know, and as we went along, I just had, like I said, resigned myself to live like that forever. And I said I was going to quit trying to make him do anything. I'd take him to, I'd make him go with me 
to Christmases at my family. And uh, one time he was so drunk he fell in the Christmas tree and knocked it down. You know, and I'd be embarrassed. Well, I'd finally gotten, even before al I'd finally gotten to the point that I wouldn't take him anymore. Well, there was one Christmas, and I was kind of feeling sorry for him. And he wasn't drunk, and he had a Coke. And I said, do you want to ride with me? I'm riding down the road to these friends, and I'm going to take these presents. And he said yes. And see, I'd about gotten where I was going places without him a lot of times, wasn't even taking him. So he said yes, so here we go. So we go down the road, and he's drinking his Coke. Just like that. <laughs> Lee's got a bottle here. <laughs> and uh, I don't know why I didn't even think that there was something else in that besides Coke. Down to these people's house, and um, I go in. He says, I'm just going to stay in the car. I go in and visit with these people, give them the gift. And when I come out, he had gotten out of the car. I don't know what he'd done me. He was bleeding. He had knocked his head somehow. He couldn't even sit up. You know, he was so drunk. Well, I had so much anger in me. I, I was the violent one. He was, not, he, he was a quiet person. If I would leave him alone, he would just drink and pass out. Now, the only time, like I said, that the gun, you know, he held one on me was that one time. But I was so mad. And it was cold. It was South Georgia, so it's usually not this cold. But he had on this big old coat with fur lining and all this kind of stuff. I thought to myself, I'm fixing to take his back to the house and put him out, and, I, you know, I'm going to my sister's and to heck with this. Well, we got back, and I, and I just, I don't know, I'm, I had a temper like you wouldn't believe, and I just slammed out of that car, and I went around to the other side of my car. And he couldn't. His legs were like rubber. He absolutely couldn't get out. So I pulled him out, and he landed right in the front door of the house, front of the house. He landed in the, <laughs> in the front yard, and I was so mad that I took my fist, and I beat on him just as hard as I could. And then, in the next thought, I thought, well, I can't leave him out here. He'll freeze. So I'm lugging the six-foot-two guy up the steps, trying to get him in the house. I finally get him in the house, and it's warm. And I was going down to my sister's for Christmas, and I thought, well, I've got to cover him up. So I got him. No, I pulled him up on the sofa and got him all covered up and tucked in where I wouldn't feel guilty about beating him and, and went down to my sister's for Christmas. But, you know, at one minute I was so angry, and the next minute I loved him and I cared and I wanted to take care of him, and I had all these emotions going on all the time. But I was just getting sicker and sicker. In 1984, his parents came to me and said, we need to get him some help. Well, I looked at him and said, I'm not putting him anywhere. I remembered what he said. And uh, when he came out of that five-day uh, psychiatric unit, and they said, will you agree to talk to him? Well, we still thought that he had just had mental problems. And his sister had um, been to uh, see a psychiatrist and, in a town, and it was the same town where she was in the hospital before. And so we talked him in to go in to see her psychiatrist. Well, we packed his bags. We had this family meeting, and we were, uh, knew that, you know, we were going to put him up there, but we were trying to convince him to go. So we talked him into going to talk to the psychiatrist. Well, this was at night, and we had it set up to take him the next day. Well, I had gotten to the point that I had shut down feelings. I'd built, built these walls because it hurt too bad to feel. So I'd also gotten where I couldn't cry, couldn't laugh. I just was like a robot. Uh, you know, I was just doing what I had to do. I was very indifferent. Um, but anyway, um, 
to a point. But anyway, it got time. We, he said he would go the next day. His mom and dad left, and there I was. Well, he did what he was supposed to do. He's an alcoholic. He knew he was fishing to get sent off. He went and drank. He left the house, and he was drinking. Um, so I sat there, and all of a sudden it dawned on me that I could not do this. I knew that I had to take him to the same town, the same place that we had gone to see his sister. And all that fear came back. And I just started crying, just boo-hoo, and it just, it just floodgates open. And I called that preacher that I had talked to and to see if he would go with me. And he couldn't go. He had a funeral, so he said, but don't go by yourself. Get his mom or dad to go with you. So I finally convinced his mom to go with us. And so the next day, we took him and he didn't drink on the way and take guns and all that stuff. And we got him there, and, of course, we left him there in the psychiatric ward. And I told that psychiatrist everything in detail that was wrong with him. Well, a few days after that, I got a call saying they were moving him over to another unit for alcohol and drug abuse. And it made me so mad. Didn't they know I knew what he needed? <laughs> and so, but they, did, they knew what he needed. <laughs> And so they moved him over, and the counselor called me and said, um, are you willing to tell him that if he doesn't get some help for his drinking, that you won't be there when he gets back? And see, I had never been to that point. I had tried everything else, but I had never left him. I would threaten. I'd threaten to leave him. And um, he would hold a 357 Magnum to his head and said, if you leave me, I'll blow my brains out. And I thought he would, and I'd beg him not to shoot himself. Well, then he'd go out, the, out of the house and shoot the gun. And I just knew he'd killed himself, and I'd run out there to see if he was okay. This didn't happen one time. Through the years, this happened over and over. One time, I, uh, when he did this, I thought, I wish you would kill yourself. See, I thought he was my problem. Today, I know I am my problem. But I thought if, I, if he would quit drinking or if he would die, I wouldn't have a problem. But anyway, this... Uh, the last time that he did that and he went out and shot the gun, I think he was very surprised when I didn't run out after him. <laughs> but I really wished he was dead. But then the next breath I thought, oh, my God, if he killed himself, it would be my fault because I wished he would die. Then I had all that guilt. But anyway, um, he's up at the psychiatric ward now, and I told him, I and mean, they moved him over to the A&D, and I told him that because I knew at this point that I could no longer live like I was living. So I was willing to say, yes, if you don't get help, you know, I can't, I can't be here anymore. Well, it got time to go get him at this treatment center, and I went by myself and was there a couple of days. And I didn't have the same illusions I had had before. I didn't have that fantasy anymore of thinking that he's going to come home, we're going to live happily ever after. I didn't figure he'd make it, you know, after our record. So uh, he got home. And that night, he called an AA contact. Now, in 77, he had been given an AA contact, but he didn't call. And, of course, in 84, he was given this AA contact. So when he got home, he called this AA contact, and we started going to meetings. Now, by God, I couldn't get him sober, but I was going to keep him sober. Now, it was my responsibility to get him those meetings and make sure he did what he was supposed to do. So here we go off to, and most, we were in a little town, so you had to go from town to town to get a meeting every night. They told him to do 90 and 90. So here we go, and we go to our first few meetings or open AA meetings, so I'm sitting with him. So they'd say something I thought he needed to hear, I'd punch him, make sure he heard it. Then we'd get in the car going home, and I thought, I need to tell him what he needed to hear. And so I'd tell him all this stuff he needed to hear. Now, I didn't know I had problems. So we're going along, and one night we're sitting 
drinking coffee before the meeting, and this woman with a kind of a gruff voice comes up to me and said, you need to be in this other room. Well, I knew about Al-Anon. How dare she? I went to Al-Anon in 1977, <laughs> one meeting. So, and I was going to the Al-Anon meeting. So in uh, June, June of 84, I went to my, that's why I call my time in the program. June of 84, I went to that Al-Anon meeting, and this same woman op- uh, sold me a one-day-at-a-time book. It's an Al-Anon Daily Reader. And she turned to the back in the index, and it talks about controlling. It gives you pages to read. And she pointed to those and told me to read them. Well, I didn't know I had a problem with that, so I did what she told me, I, you know. And um, so I, I did that, and she, uh, she later became my sponsor. <laughs> but anyway, she um, told me to read those, and I did. And then I was just, a, you know, I was just amazed. I didn't see myself the way I was. It's amazing to me now when I, do, when I look back <clears throat> that I didn't know I had a problem with control and some other things. But anyway, I start going to meetings. And uh, the first thing I felt in Al-Anon was a lot of love. And see, I tell you, I had not been able to feel a lot of things for a while. But they just, and this, they just hugged me and they just loved me and I needed to be loved. I had always needed more. I was telling somebody the other day, just as a child, I guess because I needed more attention and more love was why I acted out the way I did. I just have always needed more than most people. I don't know why. But anyway, so um, we won't analyze that. But anyway, so I'm going along, and I'm going to Al-Anon now, and he's going to AA, and he did not make 90 meetings in 90 days. One time he came in, um, and I could look at his eyes and tell that he had been drinking. And I ran back to the bedroom and got my one-day-at-a-time book, and I went to the back of it and read about slips because it talks about AA slips and it talks about Al-Anon slips and gives you pages to read. See, what had happened to me is I did not want to do what I had always done. That's the biggest step I guess I've ever taken. I didn't want to do the same thing. And I had only been in Al-Anon less than 90 days. And so I went back in the living room and I told him, I said, I know you've been drinking because he was trying to hide it. And I said, you know, I can't do anything about that. That's your problem. And that was a big step for me. And I kept going to meetings. Now, he would go some, too. He was drinking, but he would go to some meetings. And, but I kept going to Al-Anon and open AA meetings. And I'm so grateful today that I, and I still have all these years since 1984. And I kept going. And anyway, I started working on myself. And the meetings we were going to first, this sponsor just, um, the first six months I was in the program, we'd already started working on my fourth step. And uh, I had good sponsorship from the word go. We started a written, helped me with a written fourth step, started looking at myself. And um, after about six months, I'd heard in the program not to make any major decisions in the first year. But after six months, I knew that I just couldn't stay anymore. The drinking just kept getting worse and worse again because it is progressive. And the guns were there. And the fear was there. One night he... He saw us. We lived in a mess. We lived in a little mobile home on the farm. And one night we were sitting there, and there was this little snake crawling across the other side of the trailer. Then 12 feet, you know. He just took a gun and shot him. <laughs> you know. I mean, and then there was one time uh, he had this. He loved dogs. He hunted, and he had this little dog. And he was so mad at me, he shot the dog in front of me. You know, all irrational stuff. But anyway, I was scared again, and I thought, I just can't stay in this any longer. I had no intention of divorce. I just knew I couldn't live there. We lived on the family farm, had nothing. So um, I packed my little bags, and I left. And um, I told him I was leaving, that I just couldn't live with his drinking anymore. 
But I didn't tell him where I was going because I was scared. So um, eventually I did let him know where I was. But I'd heard my sponsor say that, uh, that she, if, you mean, if you say what you mean and mean what you say, they'll hear you. And so <clears throat> I meant it. I was scared. So when I did tell him where I was, I told him, if you come drinking or drunk, I'll call the law. And he knew I meant it. Well, my pride was hurt. I was separated nine months uh, at that time, and he did never come, he never came to see me. So it hurt my pride. Now he would call. He would call when he was drunk and beg me to co- uh, call me all kind of names. And then he'd call me when he wasn't real drunk, and he would beg me to come back. And all this was going on, and I was so sick that I did go back and take him to a meeting one time. And <laughs> but as I stayed separated from him, I kept going to meetings. And this is when I changed groups, and this woman with the gruff voice became my sponsor. And um, this is when I was really working on me. I was living alone, working, had moved away from where he was, so I went to another town to meetings. And uh, I was into doing my fourth step. I was on my knees praying, and I really, for the first time in my life, when I prayed for God's will to be done, I meant it. I wanted God's will to be done, not Linda's. See, I'm like the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says. I'm self-will run riot, and I want everything my way. And I had to get to the point that I wanted God's will to be done in my life. And so I'm praying for God's will to be done in my life, you know, and and what to do about this marriage, you know. Well, uh, I really was doing an awful lot of praying asking God because I didn't want to to do the wrong thing, and I didn't believe that divorce was right, but I just couldn't live like that anymore. So after nine months, and he didn't get sober or even attempt to get sober, um, I made the decision to go ahead and get the divorce. And I have to get honest enough to say, I was sitting in these rooms, these AA rooms, and there was, some, there was this guy sitting over there, and he was so cute. Whew. And he was after me. He was chasing after me. Well, I didn't think it was right to date just being separated. So that helped me go on with getting the divorce, you see, because I wanted to date him. So I got the divorce after nine months being separated. And um, then God did for me what I could not do for myself. This guy, you know, everybody in AA is not well. Uh, <laughs> or Al-Anon. <laughs> this, this guy decided he didn't want me, and so I started chasing him, but I didn't get him. <laughs> and my sponsor said to me one day, I was talking about him, you know, he had all these things wrong with him and that I could fix. And uh, my sponsor said, Linda, what do you think you're going to do, change him? I said, no. See, I've been in the program long enough now to know. I said, no, I think I'll just be a good influence on him. She said, you better look at that. (laughs) So I saw that what I was doing was what I had always done, and that was I was still so sick. I'd only been in the program like a year or so, a year and a half. I I was still so sick that I thought, you know, he needs me (laughs) and what I could do for that guy. But anyway, God spared me that. But anyway, I got real involved in Al-Anon. And I started in service work and was GR and um, started a lot of these AA weekends and Al-Anon weekends and assemblies. And my sponsor and her husband, uh, he knew, knew this guy, and we were down in uh, Jekyll Island uh, at a serenity weekend. And they introduced me to this man. Now, this was before the divorce was final. They introduced me to this guy, that, a friend of theirs. And we became friends, but... I was after that cute one, and this guy was older and all this kind of stuff, so, you know, I wasn't really interested, but we became friends, and we'd see each other at assembly, we'd see each other at these weekends like this, and um, his name was Rip, R-I-P, and we've got to be real good friends, and for a year, he would telephone once in a while, he lived in a different town, 
and we'd see each other at these things, and he'd buy me dinner and things like that. Well, finally, and I see after that guy that I couldn't catch, uh, I started uh, dating some earth people, and they were so boring. And um, like I told you, I love alcoholics. And uh, I dated this preacher, and he was kind of close to y'all. <laughs> I mean, he was more exciting. But anyway, so finally, and, um, <laughs> finally I got to... Uh, uh, I got this, we went to a weekend in Albany, and this guy, Rip, that I had met, my sponsor introduced me to, was saying, this was about a year later, and he asked me, could he come see me? And I didn't have anybody at the time, so I said, sure. So he drove to my town, and we started dating, and six months later, we were married. I always said I was okay till he touched me. <laughs> but anyway, he was, <laughs> I'm going to embarrass myself, but he was, um, he was, uh, he was in AA, he had a, uh, uh, about three years sobriety, and I'd been in Al Anon now a couple of years. And so we started dating, and um, we were already friends. And I have to say that that's, we remained friends, even though we eventually married, like I said, after six months of dating. And so I moved to Waycross, Georgia, and that's where he, he was from. And I changed groups and stayed in service work because I became GR and DR and all this kind of stuff that I did in service. And he was in service work, so we were going to all this stuff, and he started speaking. He got um, taped, and his tape started going out, you know, and, and so we started going around, and he started speaking at these things. And so it was wonderful. Well, when we got married, I didn't have those children I wanted. Well, when we married, I was 40 years old, and I still wanted children. He had two in their 20s. He had two children. And um, so we talked about it before we married and of what to do, and he was 13 years older than me. And so I said, um, he said, let's just leave it in God's hands. So I got pregnant on the honeymoon. And uh, I didn't, uh, and when I'm 42, when I turned 42, I got pregnant again. And I was so happy. Well, by this time, Rip had hurt his back at the railroad, and he couldn't hold a full-time job, and he was not real thrilled. <laughs> but I was ecstatic, you know. I was going to have that child. I'm 42 years old. See, I would have told you that that fantasy, the little white house and picket fence and the two children and all this, was gone. I was in al I was real grounded, you know, all this stuff. I would have told you that that had died. But when I married Rip, I realized today that I still had that fantasy. I still wanted that kind of life. And um, so anyway, I carried that second baby three months, and I lost that child. And I was devastated. And uh, I got angry with God. I didn't know I was. One night we were laying in bed, and I was crying and carrying on, and Rip, Rip said something about, Linda, I think you need to look at something. I think you're angry with God. And I said, who, me? You know, I'd always, I had never got angry with God, even during all the alcoholism, all the things that had happened. And I realized that I was angry with God because in the next breath I thought, God, why did you let me get pregnant if you were going to take my baby? And, you know, and that was the feelings I had, and I realized that I was angry with God. The only two things that I did right during that time is I kept going to meetings and I called my sponsor. I didn't want to go. I didn't like anybody. See, when I'm not okay spiritually, I'm not okay with you. I'm not okay with me. And I was not in a good place during that time. I was angry with God. I still believed in God, but I was angry. But I kept doing that. I didn't even like Rip, you know, and he was the love of my life. And I didn't even like him during that time. I was angry with him. He wouldn't let me try again to have another child. And um, I guess I blamed him for losing that one. It wasn't his fault. But anyway, I was just in that state, and that's a bad place to be. I couldn't pray. 
couldn't do anything. Well, I heard somebody say, and I knew enough to know to keep going to meetings, and I knew that I needed to pray even if I didn't mean it, you know. And I heard somebody say that, that when they wake up every morning that they pray before they get out of bed because as soon as their feet touch the floor, their mouth comes open. And I could relate to that. And I, didn't, and I was being very hateful to my husband, and I didn't like what I was doing, but I couldn't stop. So I started praying that way. And I still do that today. And it's become a good habit. It's become a good thing that when I wake up, that's what's on my mind. And that's what I do. And I learned a different way to pray. And I would have told you I was doing what the steps said. And I was praying before only for God's will. But I, I have a closer conscious contact with God than I've ever had. And it started then when I learned to pray, first thank God for what I did have instead of crying over what I didn't have. And asking, you know, asking for only uh, the knowledge of his will and the power to carry it out. And so I began to pray like that, and I kept going to meetings, and I got more involved. Well, you know, God is so good. Uh, I couldn't have those children, so he gave me a grandbaby. And I got to be a grandmother to that grandbaby and keep that baby a lot. Uh, his son, Rip's son, and his wife had a little girl. And so I got to start playing grandma about that time, too. Well, it took time, but eventually with going to meetings, uh, praying, and doing what I needed to do, God just changed. The, the, the fantasy was gone, but life was even better than the fantasy, you know? Uh, I'm going along, like I said, Rip and I are traveling now, going, speaking at these things, um, and I'm still in service work. He's doing, he, does a, he started a halfway house for alcoholics. He got out of um, service work to the, that service work, but I'm talking about to the point of being delegate, which I was. I'm um, chairman now of assembly. But anyway, so I stayed involved that way. But we were going everywhere traveling, and his kids uh, had finally come back, were in our life, and uh, the grandchild, and things were good. And, you know, I just, had, I just had it all. I had a good friend, that he stayed my friend. We had met so many people. We met Lee years ago, uh, one time when he spoke in, uh, Rip spoke in Orlando, and, you know, just people everywhere. And things are great, you know, and I'm happy again. I found that peace. I found that I'm okay regardless of what's going on kind of peace. And everything's great. Well, in 1995, my world fell apart. Rip was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I just wanted to say, God, why? Why would you do this to me now like it was to me, you know? But I am so grateful that I did not have to get angry with God this time. And I believe it's because I had kept this close conscious contact with God to the point that I didn't have to go there. Well, I didn't want to believe what the doctor said because I thought I can't lose my best friend and I can't lose Rip, the love of my life. So we start going to doctors. Uh, he had cancer. And um, I'm trying to work a good program, and I'm going with him, of course, taking him to the uh, oncologist. And I'm asking God to cure him. And I don't want him to die. I don't want him to have terminal cancer. And I want to believe. I said, Rip, God's already done one miracle. You're sober. I know he can do another one. And Rip would just sit back and he'd say, Linda, just pray for God's will. It'll be okay. And he had a program. I've never seen anybody die with more dignity or more grace than he died with. All of this six months when he's getting worse and worse with the cancer, you know, I'm still not accepting that he's going to die, even though the doctors tell us that he has six months to live. 
I'm still saying, we've got to fight, you know, we've got to really uh, pray for him to heal you, we've got to do all this. And finally, about a month before he died, I knew that I had to get that acceptance from here to here, and that I had to accept, and I had to really want God's will and not Linda's will, that I had to accept what it was going to be. And I started praying differently again. See, it was hard to ask God for his will to be done knowing it might be that Rip has to die. And um, so I was struggling with that through the six months. Now, our house was continual flow of people in and out, AA and Al-Anon, the whole six months. And Rip was able to go. We went to AA things, um, conferences, conventions. Uh, he was getting weaker and weaker, but he could still go. He was never hospitalized. Um, he wanted to die at home. So the last five, year, uh, five days... He was, he was bedridden. But he had the best attitude. People would come by that he sponsored and people from that halfway house, and they would say, but why you, Rip? Why you? You're doing so much. He'd say, why not me? Why not me? Why am I any different? Just pray for God's will. It'll be okay. And um, it was just amazing to go through. But anyway, um, I didn't want to lose him. And it was the most horrible thing I've ever experienced at the same time. Uh, January 1996, uh, after he'd been in bed five days, his daughter was with us. Um, I got up that morning, and I knew his breathing was different. Now, hospice had called them in this last five days, and they told me that it could be, when he died, gasping for air and all that kind of stuff. They try to prepare you, you know. But I want to tell you something. It wasn't like that, and I know why it wasn't like that. I was holding him in my arms when he died, and it was a peaceful death. God was in that room. I have no doubt in my mind, God was in that room with us that day. And he just took a breath, and then he was gone. And God just took him on. And I know that's what happened. Well, I had held it together as best I could, of course, and I kind of fell apart. The house filled up with people right away, and I had to pull it back together now. I kind of, you know, this, I might... Uh, being Al-Anon for a while, but I've got to still have this outward appearance, you know, being okay. And so I had to pull it together to get through it is really what I was doing. So um, um, I, I was able to pull it together some, and all these friends came in, and my family and the preacher, and, and um, we got through the funeral. Uh, I want to tell you this. When he, was, when he was dying, and I knew it at last, those last few days, um, I had the opportunity to tell him. Of course, we always told each other what, how we felt, but I had the opportunity to talk to him knowing he was dying and to say things, and he said to me too, and I'm so grateful for that. A lot of people don't have that opportunity. And also, uh, hospice said that I need to tell him it was okay to go because he was hurting so bad. He was in so much pain, and he was so thin. And one of the hardest things I've ever had to do was sit, tell him it was okay, that I would be okay to go on. But I knew there was things better than... I got it. Thank you. I knew that there was um, something better for him, you know. And I didn't want him... I, had, I, I, was, I asked God to take him. I was ready to release him. And it wasn't an easy thing to do. But anyway, like I said, he died and the funeral came and then... Uh, Everybody went home. Connie, one of my all friends and one of my sisters, stayed an extra night with me. And then they left. And I wanted to die. I just wanted to die. I said, God, this is too hard. 
I said, just take me on. Let me go too and be with him. Uh, because, and I didn't want to get out of the house. But I did what I know I had to do. I suited up and I showed up. I kept going to meetings. And I had to work for a living, which has been good, because I had to make myself get out and go to work. Um, this friend of mine from uh, Memphis, Tennessee, sent me a poem, and it was personalized like it was a letter from Rip. And I can't quote it, but it was talking about, Dear Linda, you know how bright and beautiful it is in heaven and how God was with us through all the suffering and all this kind of stuff. And I was reading this poem and how deeply he loved me, but that one day it would be so great when I was there with him. But there was this sentence that stood out, and it said, But your work is not done. And see, I didn't know why I was left here. <laughs> but that made me see that my work was not done here. And so I didn't know what to do except to, like I said, just put one foot in front of the other and just keep doing what I'd been doing, and that was working. And my job is where I work with alcoholics and family members of alcoholics. So I, I kept doing what I was doing, and I was just putting one foot in front of the other doing it and just, you know, trying to make it one day at a time. I was speaking after that one day, that year, and uh, I said, you know, the footprints in the sand talks about how sometimes there's only one set of footprints, and that's when God is holding you and carrying you when you can't go yourself. And I said, and then when he puts you down, you know, there's two sets of footprints. And I said, I believe he's put me down, and I wish he'd pick me back up. <laughs> and I realized that's what God does. When the going's so bad that I can't make it on my own, he carries me. But then he puts me down to hold his hand and walk by his side. He never leaves me. He's there. And he carries me through, whether it's me walking by him or when I can, he picks me up, he's with me, and he carries me through whatever I have to go through. Well, a year after, I know how much time I got, Charles. All right. A year after um, Rip died, and uh, I'm still grieving so, but I'm still doing what, you know, trying to go, I was diagnosed with cancer. And I, my reaction was, good, I can go on and be with Rip. And the next breath I thought, oh, God, but I don't want to hurt. <laughs> but, but I was okay to die, and I really was okay to die, but I really didn't want to suffer. Um, but, um, but God was good to me. He's always good and merciful. And he wasn't through with me yet. I had breast cancer, and it was caught early, and... Uh, the, the treatment was to remove my breast, and then I had reconstructive surgery. And I was, it was caught so early I didn't even have to go through the bad old chemotherapy or radiation or any of that. So God was so good. And I thought, now here I am, no children, no husband. My sisters are going to have to look after me. And I am so dependently independent. <laughs> I don't know how to say that. But I'm a dependent person, but I have to act so independent. But I did not want them to have to do that, you know, anybody to have to, I want to see about myself. Well, sometimes you absolutely have to have somebody to look after you, and when you put to sleep and you have major surgery and all this kind of stuff, you have to have somebody. So my sisters did that, of course, and um, I was just so, uh, way before I should have gotten on back to my house by myself, I did, because I just didn't want to be a burden on anybody. <laughs> somebody told me that was my ego. But anyway, um, that I got through that, and I um, God was good to me. And, and two years um, after Rip died, the fa that was he died in '96. That happened in '97. And in '98, I got a call 
from my first husband's sister. We had kept in touch. And they had found him. He never got sober. They, had, they found him at his house dead. And she called and wanted me to come. He had never remarried. And in between Rip dying and that happening, he had sent some letters by way of another alcoholic to me. And I knew he was still drinking and I didn't respond, but he was same old, same old. If nothing changes, nothing changes. And what was in the letter was the same thing that was being said to me 10, 15 years ago, whenever it was. So I didn't respond. But anyway, he was still saying how much he loved me and all this kind of stuff. But anyway, what I want to tell you is I went to that funeral. And um, I had never made direct amends to him because I knew he wanted me back and it just wasn't the thing to do. I got to make my amends to him. He was in the casket, but I needed to do that for me. And so I did that for me. And I also had the opportunity to go to his house with his mom and sister. I had forgotten how it is to live in active alcoholism. (laughs) Uh, And when I got there and I was thinking about everything, I thought, you know, I should have done something. Or Rip and I should have done something. We helped so many other people. You see, I forgot I was powerless over alcohol. And I, I had those thoughts, but thank God I didn't stay there. When I realized again, that's how quick I can go back and think and forget what this program tells me. I couldn't do anything for him when he was living and when I was married to him. But my thought was I should have done something to help him. But thank God I didn't have to say that. But I had the opportunity also to make amends to his mother and father and his sister. And I'm so grateful because his mother was in such grief and she was uh, blaming herself. Of course, back then, when I was still there, I told them it was all their fault, of course. Uh, after I got an on and they wouldn't get in, I was t- telling them they quit enabling him and all this kind of stuff, you know. So anyway, the, uh, she was beating herself up. And I had the opportunity to tell her, you did the best you could. We're powerless over alcohol. There was nothing we could do. And I'm grateful God gave me the opportunity to do that and to say that to her. I kept going to meetings and I kept asking God for what I should do. And I kept hearing the same thing being said at discussion meetings. And that was God's grace won't lead you. I mean, God's will won't lead you, whereas grace can't sustain you. And I know that today. See, I didn't have to get angry with God. I know that he's kept me through all of this. He's given me the grace. He's given me what I need to get through what I have to go through. Um, And I just ask him every day, God, what would you have me to do? Not that I do it all the time, but I do ask him, and I try to do what I can do. I want to close with this. I always try to do this. The prayer of St. Francis of Assisi says what I would like to be able to do and what I strive sometimes to do. Says, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Thank you. I love you.